Okay, obviously a lot of people are going away on Memorial Day weekend, and a lot of you wish that you were gone on Memorial Day weekend. I can tell it's just one of those days, so we might have to, you know, get some energy in here somehow. Well, uh, because next Sunday is a very special day on which the elders will not lay our hands on this boy's shoulders like we normally do, but on his head and ordain him to gospel ministry, if he passes all the exams, that is. And because immediately, well, not immediately, after that service, I begin a two-month sabbatical. Uh, This is the last time I'm going to be preaching from the book of Genesis. Actually, in August, we're going we're gonna to take a trip through the Old Testament covenant, starting with the Abrahamic covenant, so it will be similar to um, what we've been talking about in Genesis. That's going to be kind of a review, but all the covenant, Abrahamic, uh, Davidic, or excuse me, Mosaic, Davidic, and then the new covenant in Jeremiah, when we celebrate communion on, the, on Labor Day Sunday, and then the next week we'll begin a, a study in the Gospel of Mark. All the way moving, everything is pointing to Jesus. Everything in Scripture points to Jesus. I have loved going through Genesis. And probably my favorite part, my favorite section in this whole story has been uh, Abraham's role. The way that God called Abraham. Um, Abraham was far from perfect. Uh, if we've learned anything in Genesis, it's, it, it's not about heroes Uh, These guys have all kinds of problems. But Abraham's trust in God's promises, even when he had sinned and blown it, his his understanding that he needed to build an altar and and sacrifice and, and that God would forgive him of his sins. All of Abraham's life, his doubt, his belief, all of it kind of meshing together has just endeared him to my heart. I have loved Thinking about Abraham. Uh, and, and look, while it's not about heroes, the only two people when you think about it in, in the Old Testament, the two major characters that didn't have some great flaw were Joseph and Daniel. Now you've got Ezra and Nehemiah and several others that, that you could point to and say, well, you just don't see a lot wrong with these guys. But the only two that, that really stand out are uh, Joseph and Daniel and, and again, even they're pointing to Jesus. And look at what happened in their lives. They suffered a great deal. And they're like Jesus in that way. And they had their problems as well. I'm certain of that. But Abraham's flaws are, 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 are put out there. Even so, he's known as a man of faith. No wonder he shows up all over Scripture. And I would love to look at this story in Genesis and say this part of the bigger gospel story of the Lord and and say, yep, I'm pretty much like Abraham. But I'm afraid that honesty would compel me to say, yep, I'm pretty much like Jacob. You know, (laughs) Jacob, he's nowhere close to Abraham, at least in our thinking. And yet he's just like Abraham because he's part of the covenant family. And he recognizes that all of his blessings come from the Lord, and his dependence is on the promises of the Lord. You you see Jacob clinging to God's promises, almost like nobody else in Scripture. Abraham believed God, and he went on, but every time Jacob was in trouble, and most often he was in trouble, 
because of his own actions, he would say, Lord, now you know, you promised me. I'm counting on you to deliver me here. You know our man as Jacob, but the Lord changed his name to Israel, which pretty much means from liar to God strives for him. It may be talking about Jacob striving with God. Either way, the first name, not so good. Jacob, you know, it has all these nuances, but he grew into that name where he was a deceiver. And Esau said, is he not appropriately named? He has stolen my birthright from me. But God changed his name to Israel. Either way, first name not so good, second name connected with God, and the name by which God's covenant people will be known from that time forward. Pretty good trade. Our text today is Genesis 33, and we pick up the story at a pretty good place for Jacob, because of the humility that God has built into his life. Um, <clears throat> I actually had a lot of script here that I, I just cut out. It was review uh, because of the time. I told the team before uh, the service this morning, I said, look, we've got a lot to do. And, and, and Kristen Kennedy said, you say that every Sunday, you know. And, but then after David went over all that we had to do, she agreed that we have a lot to do today. But you know the story of Jacob, all of his, his difficulties. If, if, if you've been following along, he's gotten himself into so many messes. But God has built humility into his life. And we find him at a pretty good place. <clears throat> Genesis 32, my goodness, almost everything... Jacob did, almost everything he did indicated his close, special relationship with the Lord. But within minutes, here in Genesis 33, he's back to a not-so-good place. Does that remind you of anybody that you might know, like you? I mean, it certainly reminds me of me one minute humble, the next minute yielding to my fears and my selfish desires. I mean, one day obedience, the next day disobedience. The New Testament calls this Adam and Jesus, or the old man and the new man, or the spirit in the flesh. And we see it all played out in Jacob's life within minutes. We see him going back and forth in who is in control of his life. And you, you, don't, you don't have to wait till the end of the, mom, uh, end of the movie to get all the twists in Jacob's life. I mean, you experience them moment by moment. It's like it opens up like that. And then it's just back and forth the whole time. Last week, we read that remarkable encounter that Jacob had with the Lord, wrestling all night with either an angel of the Lord or the Lord himself, which I, I think to be more likely that God encountered Jacob at that place. And the Lord blessed him by giving him a new name and... A dislocated hip. So here in Genesis 33, where we come this morning uh, to begin our time in the word, uh, Jacob is about to meet Esau. And chances are good that Esau is coming to fulfill his commitment years before, 20 years earlier on his way out. Esau said, I'm going to kill him. I'm just biding my time. One of these days, I'm going to kill him. So what's going to happen? <clears throat> well, let's pray and then we'll begin to work our way uh, through this relatively short chapter and bring the story right into the 21st century. Let's, let's pray. 
Father, um, we do identify so readily with so many people in Scripture, and all of us want to be uh, Joseph or Abraham over Jacob, and yet uh, Abraham and Joseph were nothing without your intervention in their lives. So, Lord, give us the desire to be like Jesus. And it's not something we can even work up in ourselves after we're given the example. Unless he lives through us, we've got no hope. So this morning, uh, may we see the beauty of the gospel uh, in a very difficult time in Jacob's life. May we see Jesus in whose name we pray. Amen. And Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, Esau was coming and 400 men with him. Oh boy, this doesn't look good right from the get-go. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants. And he put the servants with their children in front. Then Leah with her children and Rachel and Joseph, last of all. Look, good Jacob, bad Jacob already. Already bad Jacob. I mean, it's not enough that the man plays favorites with his wives. I know a lot of you men struggle with that. No, I'm just kidding. You better not struggle with it. It's not enough that he plays favorites with his wives, but he's, he's playing favorites with the children, and this is going to haunt him later on. It's going gonna, it's gonna to rip his heart right out of his chest because he does this later on. He himself went on before them. Good Jacob, back. I mean, old Jacob would have been behind the pack actually trying to run away. God has made sure that he can't do that. He's given him this dislocated hip. And now Jacob is going to face the music. And he's bowing himself to the ground. That literally means he's falling prostrate on the ground. Seven times until he came near to his brother. Look, with everything that's going on, clearly there's some self-preservation going on with Jacob. He's like, you're mad at me. You've got a right to be. You're stronger than I am, so this is my only hope. But there appears to be some genuine, genuine humility in Jacob. And, and, and that work, the Lord working in his heart. Verse 4. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him and they wept. Now look, this, this chapter really confuses serious students of Scripture. Esau, does Esau, do his actions, Esau's actions remind you of anybody in the New Testament? Maybe the father who ran to the prodigal son? Look, there's no evidence in Scripture that Esau is part of the covenant family, that God has called him to himself, that Esau is a believer, no evidence at all. And yet, if there's a hero in this story, who is it, Esau or Jacob? It's Esau. I mean, he's forgiving, he's compassionate, he's caring, deeply cares about Jacob. Look, who knows why? Maybe, maybe he, he, his, his heart filled with pity when he saw Jacob's limp, that disguised blessing we talked about last week. Or maybe God came to Esau in a dream like he did Laban and said, don't mess with my boy. 
But even if he did, Esau's spirit is completely different from Laban's. I mean, Laban is, by gosh, if, it, if God hadn't told me in a dream last night, I'd kill you right now, is essentially what he said. Here's Esau weeping. He's hugging him. He's delighted to see him. Make sense of that. Make sense of the fact that some of the people who don't believe in Christ, who are atheists, in fact, live better lives than a lot of Christians you know. Can't make sense of that. So, it's confusing. And when Esau lifted up his eyes and saw the woman, the women and, and, and children, he said, who are these with you? Jacob said, the children whom God has graciously given your servant. See, this is one of the great things about Jacob. He's constantly conniving, scheming, trying to get things, but he truly understands that his blessings come from the Lord. So no matter how hard you work, recognize that your blessings come from the Lord. Then the servants drew near, they and their children, and bowed down. Leah likewise and her children drew near and bowed down. And at last, Joseph and Rachel drew near and bowed down. The whole family had the plan. You know, they got the plan. that Jacob had told them, look, we are in a submissive place here. Bow down when you see your, you see your, your brother-in-law or your uncle. Esau said, what do you mean by all this company that I met? Jacob answered, to find favor in your sight. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. Jacob said, no, please. If I have found favor in your sight, then accept, <clears throat> accept my present from my hand. For I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. Now, Jacob clearly saw the connection between his encounter with God the night before and his encounter with Jacob. I mean, a lot of times we want to say, where is God in all this? He's everywhere. He's in everything. He's in every encounter. He's in every circumstance, situation in your life. He's there in the middle of it. Please accept my blessing that is brought to you, Jacob says, because God has dealt graciously with me and because I have enough. Then he urged him and took it. See, one of the things that's going on here, it's, it's going on, we've been talking about it all the way through Genesis. This is a little cultural give and take. Jacob says, here's my gift. And he says, oh, no, I couldn't accept it. He said, please, well, okay, I'll, I'll do it. That's some of the stuff that is going on. It may show up a little bit later. Uh, maybe, maybe not. So <clears throat> Esau accepted Jacob's extremely generous gift. Then Esau said, let us journey on our way, and I will go ahead of you. But Jacob said, my Lord knows that the, that the children are frail and that the nursing flocks and herds are a care to me. If they're driven hard for one day, all the flocks will die. Let my Lord pass on ahead of his servant, and I will lead on slowly at the pace of the livestock that are ahead of me and at the pace of the children until I come to my Lord in Seir. Bad Jacob. <laughs> I mean, here he is again, lying through his teeth. I mean, don't you know, Esau goes off and he's, you know, one of his men is riding beside him and he says, he ain't coming. And he said, Esau, didn't you hear him? He said, he's coming. And 
Esau said, you want to put some money on that, you know? Jacob's not coming. He knew him. 20 years, hadn't seen him in 20 years. And he was a changed man. And yet, he wasn't a changed man all at the same time. (coughs) So Esau said, let me leave with you some of the people who are with me. But he said, what need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned on that day on his way to Seir. But Jacob journeyed to Succoth and built himself a house and made booths for his livestock. Therefore, the name of the place is called Succoth. Now, wait a minute. Do you know where Jacob was supposed to be going? Bethel. The angel of the Lord said, get up and go to Bethel. Go back to the land of your father's. He had said, I'm going to come to see you in Seir, and he ends up at some place building a house in the middle of nowhere. It's immediate disobedience. Bad Jacob seems to be pretty much in control. And Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, but it ain't Bethel. On his way from Padan Aram, and he camped before the city. And from the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, he bought for a hundred pieces of money the piece of land on which he had pitched his tent. This obedience is going to cost Jacob greatly, as we're going to see in a couple of weeks. Right, this disobedience. Did I say obedience? This disobedience is going to cost Jacob greatly in in a message that will be rated the board has not decided whether it's PG-13 or R yet you know there's plenty of that to come in these next few weeks good time for me to take a sabbatical I can tell you that Um, but so Jacob's just doing his own thing then verse 20 there he erected an altar and called it El Elohe Israel good Jacob making a decision here. This is the first time he has built an altar. He's established a few pillars, but he's built an altar, sacrificing before the Lord. And he calls it El God, the God of Israel. El Elohe Israel. Acknowledging both his relationship with the Lord and also the covenant promise of God to his descendants, who from that point forward will be known. As Israel. If you have humbled yourself. Before the Lord. Acknowledging that you were a sinner. With no hope of eternal life. Apart from God's gracious gift. Of Jesus to you. And if you've trusted Jesus death on the cross. As payment for your sin. Then you belong. To God's covenant. Family. I'm going to guess it for. Some of you, maybe many of you, there are times in your life where you just wonder, do I really belong to the Lord? Would a covenant son, a covenant daughter of the Lord think the thoughts that I think, behave in the ways that I behave? I mean, you're frustrated with yourself when you have gossiped yet again. Or you've spent money that you didn't have. Or you've yelled at the idiot who cut you off in traffic. Or you've given in to impure thoughts. Or you decided yet again to indulge yourself rather than to help someone in need. I could do that, but then if I do that, then I'm not going to be able to enjoy this thing that I've got. 
planned, and so I'm just not going to do it. Probably you vowed to do better, and you did for a while. And then you failed again. So what is this maddening cycle? As we've talked about quite a bit, it's the gospel cycle of creation, fall, redemption, restoration. It was true with Jacob, and it's true with you. I mean, remember from last week, weaknesses of all kinds. Weaknesses of all kinds, a lack of resources, poor health, we struggle with personality quirks, even our own personal struggles with sin. All of our weaknesses keep us in touch with the gospel. If that's not true, how do you make sense of Romans 7 coming right after Romans 8? I mean, excuse me, Romans 6, good night, what a day. Diane, would you like to come up and preach this? <laughs> I bet you get it every day. Don't tell me that. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Listen, you should, you should just, every once in a while, you should just go over there and sit in this area and sit. So hear the commentary on the sermon. It's like another sermon. And it's great stuff, too. It's really great stuff. I love it. I just only regret. Allison, next time I'm not preaching, let's go over there because I want to say amen to what they're saying. Um. <clears throat> But Romans 6, you know, Romans 5, Jesus and Adam live in you. Romans 6, you don't have to sin because Jesus is in you. Romans 7, yeah, well, Adam's still there too. You know, it's this old Jacob and Esau, uh, Jacob, good Jacob and bad Jacob, Jacob and Israel going back and forth in us. And then in Romans 8, there is no condemnation in spite of the fact that we've spent all this time talking about how miserable we are, even with Jesus in our lives, yielding to Adam as well. Why would God build Romans 7 in? Why don't we just get saved and then just do better and better every day? Because we forget the gospel. We become the Pharisees. See, the Pharisees started with Ezra. And it was a good thing. Ezra very likely wrote Psalm 119, all that about the word. And they said, we have sinned and God has punished us because we didn't follow his word. So let's get back to his word. That's a good thing. By the time 400 years later, three, 400 years later, they're a mess. And they're as self-righteous as they can possibly be. And God allows even our failures to keep us in touch with the gospel. But, but do weaknesses automatically produce humility? Of course not. Of course not. I mean, in fact, if we're not careful, our response to weakness may put us in a far worse position than we were before it came upon us. I mean, bitterness, depression, increased self-awareness, self-pity, in fact. A commitment to depend more on oneself Then on the Lord, I got myself into this mess. I'm going to get myself out. All of those reactions to weakness can have a devastating impact on the condition of our soul. And we miss the point of the weakness that God built into our lives. Humiliation is the worst response. You know, that's only wounded pride. Whereas humility is a submissive response to whatever God builds into us. Now, wait a minute. What, just, what, 
what is God builds weakness into our lives? Yes, not only that, but he often leaves those weaknesses there in spite of our passionate prayers for him to remove them or to him to do something about this problem that we have. And then on top of to add insult to injury, if you want to look at it that way, he gives us no explanation. I, I know a lot of people that say, you know what? Every time I go through a trial, I want to see what God has in for. You know what God may have in for you? Just to trust him. In spite of stuff that just doesn't make sense. And then. We learn like Paul did when God said my grace is sufficient for you. And my strength is perfected. In your weakness. So which would you rather be strong and God not involved or weak in God showing himself strong in your life? Well, that's an easy answer on Sunday morning. It's not so easy when you're, you know, out there and, 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 and you're dealing with chronic pain. Or you're dealing with one loss after another like Friday, Tony Kaur got word that Thursday or Friday, got word that his 44-year-old cousin had just suddenly died. 44-year-old cousin. And then the next day or the next night, Anne's mother died. And listen, this is on top of, you can't believe what they've gone through this last year or two. Anne's brother in his 50s died last year suddenly. Just one after another. And so do you really... You really want to choose Jack Lucas healthy all his life until all of a sudden all of these medical problems, same with Greg four years ago. And you know, you you know what it's like when you when you correct one thing, another thing pops up. And then you give medicine for that, which creates other issues. You really want God's strength in your life, it can't happen without weakness. It's impossible. Now look, if I've got to choose, I'm going to choose the easy times. That's why it's a good thing that I'm not in, I'm not in control of those kinds of choices. And God has given me a beautiful respite from some really major trials. And I don't want to live it just waiting for the other shoe, you know. Uh, even though it's been a while since the first one dropped, I don't want to wait on that. But I do want to be in the place that when the Lord calls me into pain. That I learn from Paul's experience. And I say, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses. So that the power of Christ may rest upon me for the sake of Christ. Then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions and calamities either the man's got a psychological problem or he really believes God and he just trusts God and he doesn't have to have an explanation for the problems that are going on in his life so we find ourselves dealing with the same topic of the prosperity gospel that we've encountered for the last three weeks 
If it's true that God will answer our prayers for prosperity and for health, don't you think he would have answered Paul's? Look, when you read First and Second Corinthians, there's something going on that you don't understand. He is, the gospel is at stake. Because Paul is dealing with a heresy in Corinth. You know what the, you know what the heresy is? It's the prosperity gospel. It looks, it's a little different form. But see, when, they, when, the, when the Corinthians came together, they said, we're going to have dinner and we're going to have the Lord's Supper in the middle of our dinner. And the rich people were going on what, what was known back in the day. Even the Gentiles had caught on to this because the Jews talked about it so much in the synagogues as the Deuteronomic principle. If you're, doing, if you're walking with me, then I'm going to bless you. And so they said, God is clearly not blessing these people. He's punishing them. And so I'm not going to participate in your, your sin, which is obvious because you don't have anything. And you know what Paul said? That's the reason some of you are sick. And that's the reason some of you are already dead. Because you've made a mockery of the body of Christ. It was a prosperity gospel. And you know what they were saying? They were saying, look at Paul. Look at, all the, look at all the beatings that the man's had. Look at everything that's gone badly with him. You're telling me he's the voice of God? I'd much, much rather listen to these people that are clearly being blessed by God. Everything goes their way. So Paul is dealing with this prosperity gospel. Even when he's... Not only in pain, but he gets no explanation for his pain. Now, this creates a problem for us when we see verses in Scripture that seem to say, if God say unto us, if you will serve me, then I will bless you in every way imaginable, physically, spiritually, emotionally, socially. You'll have long life. Your kids will be, everything will go right. Monetarily, everything will go your way. And, and, and the Bible does say that. But it says it in the Old Testament, under the covenant of law. In the New Testament, under the covenant of grace, the emphasis is this. If you believe me and obey me, you will suffer. And it's all over the New Testament. 2 Timothy 3.12, all who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Philippians 1.29 is given unto you on the behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake. Acts 14, 22, by many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. So, what's the deal? What's the deal with that? Well, we're going to talk about that more in August when we talk about all of those covenants that I've already mentioned. I'm going to simply say this for now. We've got one gospel story all the way through Scripture. It's, it, there are several covenants that God made all the way through. We've already seen two or three of them, you know, with, with Adam and Eve, a, a, a little bit of a covenant, certainly a covenant before they fell, then with Noah, with Abraham. And, and, and we're moving toward the Mosaic covenant, which is the covenant that dominates the Old Testament, which is a covenant of law. In the New Testament... It's a covenant grace, but it's still one story, one gospel story. Um, and, and under the covenant of law, under Moses, essentially God said, if you keep the law perfectly, then you'll have heaven on earth. 
we already know from Romans 8, but we didn't have to have Romans 8 to tell us, that the law was weakened by the flesh. It's never going to happen. There's just too much Jacob in all of us to ever find Israel living perfectly in a fallen world. That's why Jesus came to do what we couldn't do, both in life and in death. In Jesus, our hope lies in the future when when the world is restored to what it was in Eden. And the covenant people live in a perfect state. We're perfect. The world's perfect. Everything is perfect. Carolina always beats Duke. Always in that state. It's just not even... It's not even funny, really. Is I mean, you know, it's just, it's just none of that stuff. We don't even know what perfection is. We long for that day. But to seek a utopia here, even if it's in our own little bubbles, is to miss what Sean was reading a few weeks ago in Ephesians 1. The spiritual blessings That are there for us. I mean. You don't want to live under the law. In which this is the formula. If you do this. Then God must do that. Now that that is the prosperity gospel of today. That's what. If you will do this. Then God is obligated to do this. That for you. See what you're forgetting is the curse of the law. Which says. If you fail to keep it perfectly. You will die. Under the law, God is doing one thing. He's seeking to kill you. He's looking for you to kill you. Under the gospel, you have all the blessings of Christ. All the riches of Jesus are yours. In Christ, we have everything. We have life. But until the time that the earth is restored and the world is restored to what it was, there will be pain. To let Jesus take the curse of the law for you. And to let his brilliance shine through you. Means that he is going to shine through a broken vessel. And one that's never going to be like we want it. Until he's put all things to rights. So if the point of this message is that God will lift up the humble. What does that look like? We really haven't talked about it too much. We've talked about the difficulties and the weaknesses and the way that they, they cause us to look at Jesus. But the, and there are so many places that we could talk about the blessings that come from humility. And the New Testament says things that we're not even comfortable hearing. Like if we will humble ourselves before the Lord, the Lord will exhaust, exalt us. And it's almost like it's in Philippians 2, 5 through 8. And then 9 to 11, he's talking about how because of Jesus' humility, he's been exalted on high. And we get this sense from Scripture that God is going to exalt us to a special place when we humble ourselves before him. And, and since we, we're afraid of that Messing up with Jesus' glory. We don't, we don't really know how to understand it. So we, we, don't, we just don't mess with it. It's kind of like Jesus' prayer in John 17. When he says, Father, make them one with us. Even as you and I are one. What does that mean? I don't know what that means. We have been made partakers of the divine nature. What does that mean? I don't know. I don't know. But the blessings in Christ are amazing. Now, while we could look at it everywhere. We're going to look at 
Matthew 5. This is where we're going to sort of close up our time here this morning. In, in Matthew 5, we are going to take a benevolence offering and sing one more time. But we're going to look at, at um, the Beatitudes and an expanded translation. It, some of you are writers, you know, and it, don't try to write these. You're not going to have time. These expanded translations, I think, came from William Barclay, who is not one of my favorite scholars, but these were, were great explanations. They're, they're kind of like a paraphrase of what was, and it captures the truth of what Jesus was saying. See, Matthew 5 sets the, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, early in Jesus' ministry, <clears throat> pretty much sets to rest that you can live a life that's going to be pleasing to God, and He's going to accept you. He says, look, you keep the law which says do not commit murder. I, I'm telling you what the law really means. It means if you hate somebody in your heart, you're guilty of murder. Same thing with lust and adultery. If you want to be acceptable before the Lord, your righteousness has to exceed that of the Pharisees. Which in that day, everybody thought these people were, you know, like right here. And man, I want to be like that. Essentially saying there's no hero you're not good enough for God to say you're in on your own unless something happens. So in these Beatitudes, he's saying, look, if you're trying to work your way to heaven, most likely you're going to be a self-righteous person. Here's the person God blesses. And it's the humble person. The first beatitude is this, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then the paraphrase, oh, the blessings for the man who has recognized his own utter helplessness. Stop right there. Just, is that you? You ever come to that place where you just accept your own utter helplessness before the Lord? And who has put his whole trust in God. For thus alone he will be made a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. And thus enabled to live according to God's standards. For the citizens of the kingdom. Blessed are those who mourn. For they shall be comforted. Oh the blessings for the man whose heart is broken for his own sin. And the sin and suffering of the world for out of his sorrow and this makes no sense out of his sorrow he will find the joy of God blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth all the blessings poured out on the meek man who was always angry at the right time and never angry at the wrong time those of you who are meek stand please <clears throat> who has every instinct and impulse and passion under control because he himself is God-controlled. Humility is no hope of this without humility. Such a man is a king among men. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be 
satisfied. Oh, the blessings extended to the men who hungers and thirsts to be totally conformed to God's will as a man dying of hunger and thirst. For that man will be truly satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Now, what does this mean? At first blush, you think that this means mercy is extending forgiveness and kindness to people, maybe people who don't even deserve it. Um, What is being said here is even more that we look out for those who are in need and that we show compassion, that God's compassion and mercy to them, which we're going to do in just a few moments. Every month at the end of the month, we take a benevolence offering that we are going to give back not only to the ministry of the church, but also to those who are in need. All the blessings to the man who cares about the sufferings of others and who overlooks the offenses of others against him. It's twofold. He understands that is what God in Jesus Christ has done for him. And he knows the cycle of mercy will continue. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Oh, the blessings for the man whose motives are absolutely pure. For that man understands God more clearly than most. And he eagerly anticipates seeing the Lord face to face. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. You have to be humble to be a peacemaker. All the blessings for the man who seeks to make a pure and honest peace with his fellow believers. And with those who do not follow Jesus, that man will be called a son of God. The highest honor bestowed on anyone this side of heaven. And then the last beatitude, one for which... There is no expanded translation. It's expansive enough. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you. And utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let's pray. Well, Father, um, it just sounds so good and so right. And it is so hard, so difficult to be humble. We desire it because Jesus lives in us. But we eschew it. We fight against it because Adam, because Jacob lives in us. Lord, may we take strength and courage even from the ways that you dealt with Jacob and how even when he foolishly indulged his own passions, you constantly brought him back to yourself. May we long to be like Jesus. And Lord, we have opportunity To share with those who are in need. And Isaiah told us what to look for. In the Messiah. One who healed the sick. And and preached the gospel to the poor. And did all he could. To relieve the sufferings of others. So it's this odd mixture that we find. Where we are called to submit to the sufferings. 
that you bring into our lives and yet at the same time call to relieve the sufferings of those among us who hurt. Make us like Jesus in this way as well. In whose name we pray.